Welcome to the Unraveling Science podcast, the podcast where we listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Hanlon, and I'm so happy to be back for season four. This season, I'll be bringing you stories mainly featuring Irish scientists abroad, but we'll also feature some key Irish researchers working here at home. We have such a diverse season to look forward to, from ecology to physics, paleontology to neuroscience, and so much more. So, if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm extremely grateful to be continuing to work with our wonderful sponsors, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. You can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. So, Professor Douglas Field, Director of the ULAR Centre of Excellence for Arthritis and Rheumatic Diseases, Professor of Medicine and Consultant Rheumatologist at St. Vincent's University Hospital is my guest on the podcast today. So, Doug's research focuses on patients with early inflammatory arthritis and understanding the mechanisms of inflammation, metabolism and joint damage, all with a view to provide the most relevant treatment to individual patients. He is a fellow of both the Royal College of Physicians in Ireland and the Royal College London, and as someone who I've had the great honour of working with and looking up to for the past five years. So Doug, welcome to Unraveling Science. I'm delighted to have you here in person, uh, which is very exciting. So thank you so much for coming on to chat with me today. Uh, thank you, Megan, for the invitation. It is a great feeling to be actually in person. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's it definitely beats Zoom calls. After all the lockdown and the Zooms, yeah, exactly. No, no it's great to be here. Great to be here. Um, well, I suppose we'll start right in. I, I kind of want to know what you were like when you were a little bit younger and childhood were you always interested in medicine or medical research science or what were your kind of passions back then yeah so uh, extraordinarily I actually uh, had a very early interest in medicine I decided at the age of 10 that I wanted to be a doctor and uh, yeah everybody's looking at me as if to say you know what how, how do you know you know but uh, I think my father had a profound influence on me his father was a doctor and had actually died very young at 35 years of age. God, okay. He got TB from one of his patients. And in those days, of course, there was no treatment for TB. And so he died and my father was four. Okay. So uh, my father and his twin sister. Uh, so they were brought up by my grandmother. And so I think that there was always a little bit of a fascination uh, on my father's part mm. uh, of what his father was like. And, you know, he, he had, I think, a, a desire that one of his kids might might f follow his, his father's footsteps into the medical profession. So I don't know whether he gave it to me or some, but somebody anyway gave me a, uh, a, a, a. You probably don't know these books, Megan, but the, <laughs> there was a the, the Ladybird series of books yeah. for kids. No, we had them. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. So so somebody gave me a lady book uh, book on biology. Okay. And there was a diagram in that of the uh, vascular system, and it had all the arteries uh, and the heart in the middle all in red mm. and it had all the veins uh, and the veins leading back to the, the vena cava in blue okay. and this diagram just uh, fascinated me <laughs> and, and I so I, I from a very early age from 10 years of age I had an interest in blood vessels and the fascination with what made the body actually tick you know yeah god yeah. it's funny how it was it was blood vessels and you know that that, that kind of has carried through 
Yes, yeah, very much so. It's a sort of central theme in, <laughs> in much of my uh, much of my early research, and 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 even now, I think uh, you know there's there's uh, lots of work that we're doing around the endothelium and blood vessel growth and what controls it and uh, and how it behaves in in disease. Yeah, not just in in inflammatory disease, but also in cancer. Yeah. And so, so what did your dad do then? If he, he wasn't obviously a medic. No, my dad was a businessman. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he, he used to tell the story about that he was his uh, his mother actually sent him to a school. He was English uh, from Bristol. He sent him to a school which prepared young uh, people for medicine. Uh, yeah. And when he was fifteen, uh, the headmaster called in my grandmother and said that uh, he was wasting their time and her money. <laughs> really. <laughs> <laughs> so he was taken out and he was put in he was given a job in a, a sort of corporation which he stayed in for the rest of his life and worked always in the same uh, in the same business and I know there is a link with India and your gran- your grandfather yeah. so explain that to me yes, it's fascinating so, so my grandfather was a doctor and he had qualified from Guy's Hospital in London mm. and uh, he actually I'm not sure whether he trained uh, through the British Army or whether he had joined the army thereafter but he was sent anyway to India too and he was stationed in Bangalore uh, where he worked as a doctor in the Indian Medical Service and so my father and his sister were born in Bangalore and uh, so my father used to joke that he had dual citizenship for uh, India and the UK. But uh, they they uh, they came back, I think, when my grandfather became ill and uh, went back to the West Country and he died in Stow-in-the-Wold in the Cotswolds. And uh, then my grandmother, I think, moved to Bristol and they grew up in Bristol. God, that's <laughs> like such a mad story. It's, yeah, it is. It's, it's, well, certainly in today's perspective, you know, uh, where people are diagnosed with TB and, and survive yeah. and are treated. But in those days, they had no antibiotics, of course. So, uh, yeah, that was it. And so I suppose you kind of, you've got this Ladybird book at 10 and you were very interested in the human body. I suppose when you were in secondary school then, how did that manifest? And did you do secondary school in England or I, I so so as, as you yeah, I went I went to school everywhere <laughs> yeah. I I grew up in England and Scotland and then back to England and I had five uh, there was five siblings so uh, myself and my next eldest brother always went to day school uh, so wherever we lived we went to school whereas my three older siblings actually always went to boarding school and I don't know why that I think it was just you know it was at that time yeah. uh, I think because my parents were moving around and it was always to do with my father's job but anyway my, my mother was Irish so when my father got offered a job in Dublin he jumped at the opportunity and uh, so we came back to live in Dublin in 1972 I had already started to secondary school but I went into secondary school then in Dublin at the age of 12 uh, and myself and my uh, nearest brother we always sort of considered ourselves as Irish because we'd always holidayed in Ireland and because my father didn't have much family uh, in the UK uh, the connection was very much on my mother's side and okay. so we used to go to visit my grandmother in Cork and we'd holiday in Kerry as we still do now yeah <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and so uh, when we came back to Dublin in 1972 my brother and I looked at each other and said well, we're actually we're home now so yeah, <laughs> because God. we always felt Irish actually 
And I suppose, you know, you came back at age 12, so they're kind of your formative years anyways. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. And uh, we we had a lot of friends through my mum's connections in Dublin. And so we went into a school at Gonzaga College where as some of my mum's friends' kids were as well. So okay. we had all these connections and uh, we felt very much at home. <laughs> and when you were thinking about what you wanted to do in college, was medicine the obvious choice? I, I never doubted that I was going to be a doctor. Really? Yeah, I never even questioned it. Even after 10 years of age, I just, I had it in my mind that I was going to be a doctor. And I never really thought about what I had to do to get into college to do medicine. Although it was a lot easier in those days than it is now. But it never it never occurred to me that I might not actually, uh, you know, uh, get get whatever results I needed to in, yeah. my, in my school exams to get into medicine. Uh, as it turned out, I, um, I, I did enough to get into the Royal College of Surgeons, uh, although I probably wouldn't have got into UCD or Trinity at that time. But that in itself turned out to be a great experience uh, and, and uh, has, has proved to actually give me huge connections with great friends who, who remain today all over the world. In RCSI? Yeah, yeah, because uh, you know, I, I don't know how many people know, but RCSI took 60% of students from international uh, applications okay. and 30% odd were from uh, Irish. Mm. So uh, I knew a lot of the Irish students, but then I met friends from Australia and Norway and Canada and the Middle East, the Far East. And, and a lot of these people remain friends today. So we're still in, in touch, actually. Which, yeah, which God, such a multicultural experience yeah, in yeah. the heart of Dublin. <laughs> yeah. And when I went into college, I was 17, uh, left school a little bit early. And uh, a lot of these guys were mature students before it was popular for mature students to study medicine in Ireland. So a lot of these guys were 24 or even 30, having done maybe one or two degrees already. Ah, OK. Yeah. So it was, um, it was an interesting uh, education as well, in a, in a, in a social sense, <laughs> meeting all these different nationalities, but also different ages. And, you know, some of these guys were married even, you know. OK. Yeah, yeah. Very different for a 17-year-old. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, because I was wild. <laughs> We'll save that for another podcast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you then went and did your MD in UCD. Yes. And how does that work? Because I'm just always fascinated with, you know, clinician scientists or clinician researchers, because I feel like there's just so many steps you have to undertake. Yeah, yeah. And is it a case that you go down kind of a pure medical route or you do, you know, get have a bit of research on the side or how does that work? So, so when I finished college, you have to do one year internship, which is a sort of a training year. And, uh, and then you move on to what is now called your basic uh, training, your basic medical training, which is usually two years. And, and it's the same then, but it wasn't very structured in those days, although I was able, I did get a job which secured my, my, my various positions which were six monthly yeah. for two years. And then when you've done that, you, you then have to sit uh, an exam, a higher exam for the, for the College of Physicians, which is the membership. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's part one and part two. But you have to start part one before you can get onto a sort of a training scheme. And, uh, and then, in, again, in those days, it was very unstructured. Uh, and very few medics did PhDs in those days. Uh, so it was a sort of a natural progression 
permission to do an MD, which is sort of a doctorate of medicine. And it's different, again, in different countries. So in the US, an MD is your basic medical degree, uh, whereas in Europe or in Ireland or Britain, an MD is a higher degree yeah. after your initial training. Yeah, and I, and I could have decided to actually uh, submit my MD by... Uh, research, so my thesis could have been submitted actually to UCD or to Trinity, or is it, but as I was working in a hospital, it was affiliated to UCD. Okay. I, I went through the University College Dublin route. Yeah, and was that on rheumatology? It, well, it was, yeah. Uh, it was actually, the title was on psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Okay. So, in fact, my, my, yeah, my thesis, uh, although that's not what it started out as, like many, uh, <laughs> you know, PhDs and MDs, uh, it started out with a slightly different emphasis, which was very much on the endothelium and endothelial cells. And we still looked at endothelium and endothelial cells, but very much in patients with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. And what I ended up actually looking at was the expression of adhesion molecules, which was a very new sort of discovery at the time. And uh, there was a colleague of ours and a collaborator, uh, Professor Dorian Haskard uh, from London, and he had developed, he actually had developed monoclonal antibodies against these adhesion molecules on endothelial cells. So we used those in immunized chemistry to look at the expression of adhesion molecules on the tissue in psoriasis and in psoriatic arthritis, synovium from the okay. from the joints. And, and I was taking biopsies from uh, patients with psoriatic arthritis using a, a Parker Pearson needle, which was a blind needle. So you put the needle in through a little sort of two millimeter incision and you didn't actually know what you were getting, but yeah. you just put suction on it and pulled and uh, hoped for the best that you got a little bit of synovium. And most of the time you did, actually, because as long as you were in the joint, you usually got synovial tissue. Uh, and then we looked at, so we looked at inflammation, we looked at T cells and B cells, we looked at the expression of those and the numbers in the tissue, macrophages uh, in fave. the tissue as well. <laughs> in fact, so, so the, the, one of the main findings we found comparing psoriatic arthritis synovial tissue to rheumatoid arthritis was that there was there, there were less macrophages and monocytes in the psoriatic synovial tissue compared to rheumatoid. And they had less hyperplasia of the synovial lining layer. And of course, they but they had differential expression of these adhesion molecules on the endothelium. And so then we looked at the actual pattern of blood vessels in the biopsies. Um, and at the time, we described increased numbers of blood vessels. But of course, subsequently with, with our arthroscopic studies, we were able to see that the uh, the, the new vessels in psoriatic arthritis were dysregulated mm. and actually had a different shape. So they weren't branching. Mm. And, and it was probably the fact that they weren't branching that they were becoming convoluted is why we were actually counting on, on a section more blood vessels in the synovial tissue. So, and I suppose I, I will get into, we'll get into the kind yeah. of nitty gritty <laughs> of, you know, the mechanisms at play in these inflammatory uh, diseases. But I suppose the importance of having these different morphology of blood vessels and this dysregulated angiogenesis is that a lot of immune cells can come in to the joint. Yes, and so we believe that that's one of the primary, uh, um, if you like, abnormalities in terms of the pathogenesis of arthritis is that the, the the blood vessels are activated. The endothelium becomes activated, expresses adhesion molecules and, and secretes chemokines and that they attract the immune cells from the circulation into the site of inflammation in the tissue. 
Yeah. Um, well, I'm very excited now. We're going to get into all that. Right, okay. But I want to take you back a small bit. Okay. Because I know you were in Leeds for a while. Yeah. So talk to me about your time there and was there ever a thought that you would stay there? Yeah, so actually... I, I, Again, when when I when I finished my MD, I, and I, I there, there were at that time there was only about seven or eight rheumatologists in Ireland. Okay. So there's very few jobs. So of course I was, you know, it was quite clear to me I didn't have to be told that there was no job for me. So I had to leave Ireland, and uh, I actually got my job, first job in the University of Dundee. And I worked with uh, Professor Jill Belch there, who was a super mentor. And Jill was really, she was uh, interested in inflammation from the point of view of prostaglandins and leukotrienes and the the molecules which were involved in uh, in the inflammatory process. But she encouraged me really to follow my uh, my, my sort of star in terms of my research. And uh, so that was a lecturer job. Um, Okay. And I finished off my training in Dundee and I got some great research, again, looking at sort of vasculature uh, in other forms of autoimmune disease, not not psoriatic arthritis or not, not necessarily rheumatoid arthritis, but some of the connective tissue diseases. And when I'd finished that, then I was looking around as to see where, where would I go. And as I was looking around, Paul Emery had just been appointed to Leeds yeah. as the new chair in rheumatology and Leeds was the flagship uh, rheumatology centre for the what was then called the Arthritis Research Council which was a sort of UK charity supporting rheumatology research and Mm -hmm. education and so Paul actually was given a large amount of funding and recruited a number of people so he actually recruited myself and John Isaacs who's now in Newcastle as uh, senior lecturers or what would be termed associate professors now so we were recruited at the same time and started at the same time in Leeds Hmm. and Paul was building up a big unit and he was given carte blanche essentially and a clean slate to start from scratch and so it was really good fun actually to set about building a unit and a program of research from scratch and uh, we had lots of research fellows we had some uh, you know um, research lecturers and so there was no shortage of staff there was no shortage of money and we really set about setting uh, you know starting a clinical trials program and a clinical and translational research program which I think has become one of the best in Europe actually yeah uh, and it was great fun I must say <laughs> it must be because they're all your pals still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We became great friends, and we still still remain great friends with John and and Paul and their families. And and so we were we were we had all come to Leeds around the same time. And Ursula, as you know, come over from Dublin after she finished her PhD, and she started in rheumatology at that time as well. And so we all knew each other, and we actually socialised a lot together as yeah. well as worked together. And uh, yeah, and it, it it actually was a it was a very exciting time. And why did you then decide to move back? Are we always going to move back to Dublin? Well, yeah, yeah, no, I always had a grow for coming back to Dublin. As I said to you earlier, when I came back when I was 12, I felt I had arrived home. Yeah. So I always considered Ireland as home and Dublin particularly. Uh, So I was applying for jobs back in Dublin as they sort of came up. And Paul kept on dreaming ways of keeping me in Leeds. <laughs> and of course, uh, myself and Ursula had our first child, James. In He was born in, in Leeds. And so Paul made a big deal out of him being a Yorkshireman <laughs> and, and uh, buying him all the Leeds United football strip. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, was was uh, was trying to keep us there. Uh, and and in fact, we were very tempted a, a number of times to stay because the work was going well. It was very exciting. We had great friends. Mm-hmm. It was very easy to get back to Dublin for visits. But essentially, yeah, we we, we both wanted to return to Dublin, and uh, eventually, we were able to actually make that happen. You know. Now you know yourself. You're so you're based out in UCD and uh, well in the URC and uh, Vincent's Hospital and Ursula's based in Trinity where I work. Um, yes. But it is a very you know collaborative team and that you know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Everyone goes back and forth. Absolutely, and uh, you know, uh, I mean. I think you know Ursula's success in terms of setting up her own department here in Trinity uh, is is it speaks for itself. We we've had a very productive research, if you like, collaboration uh, yeah. really since 1996 when we started uh, in Leeds, and uh, so yeah, so we don't we don't want to stop that really. Uh, <laughs> So I suppose this is probably a good point in a conversation to bring in the whole research area of rheumatology, rheumatic diseases. Would you maybe explain what a rheumatic disease might present like in a patient? So when I was a medical student, um, as I said to you, there was only about six or seven rheumatologists in Ireland and there was none in the hospital I trained in, which was Jervis Street Hospital, which is now a a, uh, shopping (laughs) (laughs) centre. So yeah, Jervis Street was one of the first voluntary hospitals. It was established around the uh, mid-70s. Hundreds. Okay. So it was a very old building, and uh, it, it was a. I mean, it was very antiquated. But uh, there was no rheumatologist there, and so patients with rheumatic diseases were admitted under the professor of medicine, uh, who I worked for, and they they really weren't given uh, really any specific treatment. It was gold injections or steroid tablets, and that was it. And I remember as a medical student, this little lady who'd had rheumatoid arthritis for about 40 years came in, and, and actually she passed away because of the the toxic effects of steroids and gold. The gold had, had damaged her kidneys. The steroids really damaged her whole metabolism and, and really suppressed her immune system. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she... she died as a consequence of the treatment. because that, And that was the only treatment that we had available in those days. So that really had a very profound effect on me, that, that patient. And, and, you know, I sort of felt that there must be better ways of actually treating these people. And, you know, they deserve better in a sense. They deserve to see a specialist who had an interest in this area. So I did have, from an early stage in my medical career, an interest in rheumatic diseases. And again, that was sort of, I think, further emphasised by the fact that there was so little known about the pathogenesis of rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, we, we knew about rheumatoid factor in those days, but nothing else. The genetics wasn't known. Uh, the, the risk factors weren't known. So there was really very little known about, you know, why people got rheumatoid arthritis in those days. So, you know, and that, that was I was never afraid to ask questions. I was always encouraged to ask questions. And so I think, uh, you know, even though I didn't, formally recognising myself that I had a research bent, if you like, mm. I, I I was always asking questions. And so I wasn't, uh, I had an inquiring mind and I wasn't afraid to ask questions. And I wanted to know why these diseases occurred. Why did they happen more in women than in men? You know, why did they affect certain areas of the joint? So, for instance, why does rheumatoid arthritis affect some joints and psoriatic arthritis? possibly affect other joints in the body, you know. So these were really questions, I think, that drove me to to find out more and ask more questions. And typically now when a patient comes in, what does it present like? What does the disease present like? Or what are the kind of telltale signs for you as a clinician? 
Well, it presents very differently to those days because actually most of our patients in those days turned up in a wheelchair. Okay. And nowadays they walk into the clinic, they may have a swollen joint or pain. And pain, if you ask patients, they'll say that pain is the most uh, important symptom uh, and the primary symptom that will actually drive them to seek medical help. They may have swollen joints, tender joints. They may have difficulty with actually uh, sort of fine movements, particularly particularly if the joints affected involve the, the small joints of the hands, uh, or indeed the feet. Particularly if people work on their feet, they may have a lot of pain in their feet during the day as they're working. Mm. And and then systemic symptoms, so things like tiredness, or fatigue. They might not be able to sleep because of pain at night. Uh, these are all quite common symptoms, actually, from an early stage. And that's one of the main things that we've been trying over the last 20 years is, or 30 years even is to try and get the diagnosis as early as possible and that has, has obviously made a significant difference so the, the main early arthritis clinic started around the early 1990s and the whole drive there was to try and get people to actually see a rheumatologist at the earliest stages of their disease. The reason being that destruction to the joints is irreversible. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and and actually, if you can get the treatment started at an early stage, we originally we believed that we hadn't any evidence for it, but now there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the earlier you start treatment, the better the outcomes. And I suppose, you know, you're talking about the the gold injections early on and Mm. steroids. And now we have so many different treatment options. But still, there's an unmet need and there's still some patients who don't respond. So do you think it's a case that we need more treatment options or do you think it's a case that we need to give the right patient yeah, the right treatment? Yeah. <laughs> so that's 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 a really good question, uh, Megan, because I, you know, we, we, we certainly, we, we've made huge inroads in terms of making the early diagnosis, although I think there's still room for improvement in that respect. Uh, and, and as you say, our treatments now, so actually one of the, one of the things that happened when we, while we were working in Leeds was the whole development of the biologic drugs, so the biologic DMARDs or disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. And that really started in the late 1990s when we were still in Leeds. And being a clinical trials unit, we were involved in some of the pivotal clinical trials of the biologic medicines. But I suppose for people who mightn't be aware, what are the biologic... Yeah, so actually, there, 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 was this, there was this concept of the magic bullet. <laughs> and in fact, I think I wrote, a, I, I wrote an editorial for the Irish Medical Times, I think, in 1990-something. <laughs> Uh, talking about the magic bullet and it was a drug that could just impact on one molecule or one point in the pathway of inflammation and uh, so this concept of the magic bullet was very much sort of you know it was mythological in a sense but it was also uh, you know what people were were aiming for so the, the biologic drugs were essentially a magic bullet so they were monoclonal antibodies which was a complete change in from conventional uh, disease-modifying drugs, which were chemicals, things like methotrexate, gold, silazopyrene, the monoclonal antibodies were genetically engineered essentially to target a single molecule. And the first ones that we used in clinical practice were actually against uh, the CD4 molecule uh, expressed on the T cells. And uh, and, or the CD3 molecule uh, expressed on T lymphocytes. And actually... 
they all the trials of CD4 monoclonal antibodies failed in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis and nobody could understand it. Even to this day, I don't think people really fully understand why that is because CD4 was thought to be a pivotal molecule in the activation of T cells. So that was the first one. So they were failing and everybody was getting a little bit despondent about that. But then the, the tumor necrosis factor monoclonal antibodies were developed and the first one was a chimeric antibody so it was half mouse half humanized and that was put into clinical trials in humans and had a had a profound effect in some people uh, with with rheumatoid arthritis and of course like most of these drugs they were trialed in patients with very long-standing disease who already had a lot of damage and disability so the effect was was mild uh, to moderate I think in the first studies but as the uh, as the, the the this area grew studies of earlier disease then came along and 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 it showed that actually the monoclonal antibodies against tumor necrosis factor actually suppressed the inflammation very well mm. and and actually prevented also prevented progression of the changes in terms of cartilage and bone damage so that really was a game changer and uh, initially i think we used the first infliximab or uh, yeah, antibody in 1999 in a patient actually who had psoriatic arthritis in Leeds. Had erythrodermic psoriatic arthritis where their whole skin had really erupted. They were losing body fluid. They were using fluid through the skin so much so they had to go to the intensive care unit. So we gave that patient uh, infliximab and uh, they responded almost immediately and had a phenomenal uh, impact. And then there was other TNF inhibitors that came along and there's now lots of biosimilars and mm. there's about 10 different different varieties of different, but they all inhibit TNF-alpha. And then there's, as that grew, then there's, there many other molecules were targeted, such as IL-6, IL-17, and lots of others now. And so now we have millions of different treatments. Yeah. And you're right. So coming back to your original question, uh, <laughs> We, we know that actually between 15 and 30% of patients even still will not respond to these drugs. Or they may respond initially and then lose response or they may become intolerant of the treatments. So what do we do for those patients? And, and so there is an unmet need for those patients. And it's a significant number of patients. You're talking about maybe one in three, one in four patients. So the other aspect that we're really focused on now is is what you said is the correct treatment mm. for the correct patient at the correct time or the right person right place right time yeah and so what and that's really what the precision medicine sort of if you like program is actually focused on is trying to choose what is the best treatment for the best patient uh, and and we know that all patients are not the same mm. so patients are different they have even though on the face of it, their arthritis looks very much the same. They may have different molecules or different cells that are being activated in different proportions. And so while one might respond to a TNF inhibitor, uh, one may not. And then one might respond to an IL-6 receptor antagonist, one may not. So, so that's really what we're trying to look at now. We're trying to get the diagnosis back to before the disease starts. Yeah and then choose what is the best treatment for that individual patient. And I know you, you're very passionate about psoriatic arthritis and, and research into this area. And I think ORA, you know, seems to be kind of the, the flagship rheumatic disease nearly because that's what everyone kind of studies. 
why do you think there is such a lack of definition, I suppose, maybe in, in psoriatic arthritis research? And, and what do you want to achieve with your research? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, psoriatic arthritis is uh, quite a recent disease in the sense it was described uh, in Leeds, actually, by Paul Emery's predecessor, uh, Werner Wright. Okay. Uh, and and his, his um, colleague, John Moll. So they described psoriatic arthritis in the 1970s. So that's pretty recent, actually. Mm. It was only 25 years after uh, before I arrived in Leeds. And in fact, it, it, it sort of gained a little bit of popularity because of a, an actor called uh, Dennis Potter, who actually uh, was, was renowned for a film called The Singing Detective. <laughs> and the story of, of The Singing Detective was he had psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis. And uh, so, so it's a very recent disease, whereas rheumatoid arthritis has been described if you look back in the sort of history books, it's probably described over 150 years ago. Yeah, and and it is more common. If if you look in the clinics today, even rheumatoid arthritis patients are the most common inflammatory arthritis patients, and psoriatic arthritis is the second most common patients that we would see in the clinic. After that, maybe the ankylosing spondylitis and the connective tissue diseases. So there is a certain, you know, I think focus on rheumatoid arthritis because there's more patients with it. And, you know, initially it was thought to be more destructive, although we know now that psoriatic arthritis can be very destructive. And of course, now there's a more focus on psoriatic arthritis because we know some different molecules are involved in the pathogenesis of psoriatic arthritis. Uh, and so that different monoclonal antibody treatments now have been developed, which seem to be much more effective at treating psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis than, than some of the drugs that we've used in, uh, in rheumatoid arthritis. And another kind of area of research is this whole idea that the, the joint is hypoxic and you and Ursula and co um, have shown that the joint is apparently hypoxic. I'm wondering how difficult were those studies to actually undertake and what does the joint being hypoxic mean, I yeah. suppose, in, in the context of inflammation? There were very difficult studies to undertake because all our studies are in, uh, in patients. Yeah, we, we don't do studies in mice. Uh, and, and that's really one of our focuses. It's, it's translational research, translating science into patients, you know, uh, and into the clinic. Uh, and, and, you know, tra- translational research means different things to different people. So if you talk to a scientist, they'll say, oh, yeah, that's translating clinical medicine into science. Yeah. yeah so we're, we're going from science to clinical medicine. And uh, so uh, the emphasis very much was on the blood vessels in the joint and why are the different patterns of blood vessels in the different diseases um, and what does it mean? So we were we were looking at that and we thought, well, maybe if they look different and they're a different structure, then perhaps their actually function is different also. So we wanted to look functionally at the blood vessels. And of course, if you know, what the main purpose of blood vessels is deliver oxygen and nutrients to the tissues. So we said, well, Let's look at hypoxia, delivery of oxygen into the joints. So we, we, we were able to get this probe, which was actually developed for brain surgery to maintain um, normoxia in the brain during uh, oh. open brain surgery. So this probe, it's a microscopic probe, uh, and, and we could pass it through the, end, the arthroscope into the joint. And we took a biopsy from the lining of the joint, and then we embedded the tip of the probe into the, the synovial biopsy pocket. Okay. And that gave us, for the first time, we were able to actually get a true reflection of the oxygen tension 
in the tissue as opposed to into the joint cavity or in the fluid. So that was pretty unique, actually. Mm. And and we did that study in, in a relatively small number of patients. I think it was about 25 patients. But we got very accurate readings. And we, we were able to actually repeat those studies in patients after they'd been treated as well. And we could see that actually once treated uh, effectively, that the hypoxia was reversed. Okay. And so uh, we, we, we could see that this was a, re- a reversible phenomenon. And and then at that follow, following on the hypoxic studies, we then started looking at the metabolic studies. And that really, because that was le- the next obvious thing was if we're looking at nutrients, what about glucose metabolism mm. in the tissues? And that led on to the whole area of looking at glycolysis and oxfos and, and, and looking uh, in vivo and ex vivo in the synovial tissue at the metabolic changes, which seem certainly from that from the research we've done and published, goes hand in hand with the changes in inflammation. And actually, one of the interesting things that we showed was that if you target the inflammation, you can actually reverse the metabolic changes. But also, if you target the metabolic changes with a metabolic inhibitor, you can actually change the inflammatory process as well. Yeah. And so we were we were the first to show that as well. So that was quite interesting. And and it really does I think opens up a whole area of possible adjuvant therapy as well, you know. And uh, I think that there are there are some metabolic inhibitors which which may be useful. They're look you know being looked at at the moment in terms of development as treatments. Uh, so I think that that's something to keep an eye on, actually. Yeah, and we're and we're also, I suppose, kind of seeing that these changes in metabolism and inflammation um, happens really early in disease. Yes, yeah. So that's really that's and that's it fits in with our early diagnosis and our early. Uh, arthritis clinics. So we're now really trying to identify patients before they develop arthritis because ultimately what we're really trying to do, and and I should say that, you know, everything we do is, you know, for patients and and we couldn't do anything that we do without patients. Mm -hmm. And so we're we're passionate about involving our patients in our study, not just as participants in our studies, but actually in designing the studies. And we've got some great patient partners who actually you know do talks for us and actually you know educating the public educating people with arthritis and we link in very closely with Arthritis Ireland in that respect as well but so so all the the studies that we're doing are really to try and actually improve the lot and we want to find a cure for arthritis that is the bottom line mm-hmm. we want to prevent arthritis before it even starts so that we don't have to use all these fancy drugs actually and the, the pharmaceutical companies probably wouldn't like that but <laughs> underneath it all I think they probably are interested in actually uh, finding a, a cure as well Yeah and I think that's really nice the distinction between participants in a study and partners in a study yeah. Absolutely. So all our patients are partners, really, very much so. And uh, they're very interested and they, they, you know, they have absolutely no hesitation most of the time to take part in the studies. You know, in fact, m- many of them are volunteering, you know, they're sort of coming in and saying, I want to be a part of that study. You know? Yeah, but I think it's nice as well, because I know yourself and Ursula will run a lot of workshops and explain exactly like you're explaining to me, yes. you know, what their um, participation can ha- can do, can yeah. help, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important because then they know exactly where their samples are going to. Yes, and I think that's something that we've been doing for a long time, even though I know a lot of 
you know, a lot of the grant agencies and the funding agencies have, have actually now stipulated that you should have a partner, mm. a patient actually involved in the design of the study and the running of the study. But we were actually doing that before it became, if you like, a sort of an official, you know, request or yeah. requirement. I suppose, Doug, you know, I'm wondering what do you love most about your job and what, what kind of gets you up in the morning? Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this question because <laughs> I, I, I knew it was coming. But uh, no, I mean, I love what I do. I, I love I actually love talking to people. I love talking to patients, uh, not just about their disease. I love talking to patients about themselves, about what drives them, what gets them up in the morning, you know, what their interests are. Uh, and I, you know, I like to build up a picture of my patients. So I'm very committed to my patients. Uh, and as I think probably committed to them as they are committed to me <laughs> so that's that's certainly one and in everything that we do in terms of our research is is aimed at trying to improve not just the the lot for our current patients but also future patients um, I'm really lucky in that you know my job is half clinical and half research and so UCD uh, have given me protected time for the last 14 years so I, I spent half my work it doesn't really work out that way because I tend to spend, you know, twice as much time doing both research and clinics. Yeah. But so I do clinics every day. I see patients every day. Uh, but I'm also doing research and writing grants. And we, as you know, we've got some great programs of research, both academic and also in collaboration with some of the pharma companies looking at early stage development drugs. And that's really fascinating. So I'm passionate about what I do. I, I love the patients. I love the interaction of the patients, talking to them. I mean, nothing gives me more satisfaction than a patient who comes in unable to walk properly or, and, 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 you know, a couple of weeks or months later, they can do everything. And, yeah. you know, sometimes they say, oh, you know, actually, I had a patient recently. I'll just tell you the story. This lady and she tried and failed just about every drug that I could think of, including the biologics. And she had psoriatic arthritis and it affected her knees. It affected her hands. So she, and she was housebound. And uh, she's a very proud lady, always came in looking well well you know she looked after herself but we couldn't actually control the inflammation and actually what I did so I did in fact I combined two drugs that we wouldn't normally combine okay. uh, was which one was injectable and one was a tablet and uh, she wrote to us about six weeks later saying that she'd lost two stone in weight she was now out walking every day she'd seen her grandchild for the first time in about two years uh. Because one, because she could get out, but also two, because now the lockdown was over. Yeah. But she had no pain. She was sleeping through the night and she was exercising, hence her fairly rapid weight loss. Oh, my uh, God. Which, and, she, and so I saw her recently and she's just absolutely in total remission. And that was after, I think, maybe 10 years <gasps> of, of being pretty much really incapacitated. Wow. Yeah, so that's really, that's that to me is the ultimate uh, satisfaction, really. You know, that, that in a sense that we can uh, not only treat the patient, get rid of their pain, but also give them a quality of life that uh, they didn't know before, you know, or they hadn't known for a long time. 
And is there some kind of satisfaction in, in finding the correct combination, you know, to kind of like a puzzle? Nearly. Yeah, now I don't know why actually that combination, <laughs> but it was it was what I it's what I came up with for that lady. And it worked for that lady. Now, we have we have actually taken biopsies. She was happy to take biopsies to give us biopsies of her knee. So mm. so maybe we'd be able to actually look at figure that out. tissue and figure out why this combination of treatment is working for her. It yeah. would be, it'd be really nice. And we've done that with one or two patients. So there's another patient who I'll quickly tell you about was a chap who had cancer and was treated with a checkpoint inhibitor which are the sort of biologic drugs that are being used to treat cancer and have transformed the treatment of many cancers now like melanoma and lung cancer and this chap had one of these treatments it worked very well for his cancer but then he developed arthritis which is a recognised sort of uh, autoimmune diseases are a recognised complication of some of the checkpoint inhibitors yeah. and and in some of our studies we'd shown that this checkpoint molecule was overexpressed in patients with rheumatoid arthritis at an early stage even before they got rheumatoid arthritis so there's a link there somehow in the etiology the pathogenesis mm. between the cancer and rheumatoid arthritis but this came in this guy came in with really really bad arthritis couldn't move and he couldn't understand he said you know he's I was, so, I was doing so well and then this thing just struck me out of the blue so we got him and we took a biopsy and we were able to look at the cells and the, and the molecules expressed in his biopsy and we sort of said yeah well that's the best treatment for him and we actually put him on a treatment and lo and behold within two weeks he started improving and he's been in remission now for over two years Wow. Okay. so he's in remission from his cancer and he's in remission from his arthritis which is really just fabulous you know yeah no they're they're lovely yeah. stories and because yeah. you know a few people had said to me they'd love to hear from clinician scientists and I think that's the kind of reason why yeah, is to yeah. get that oh yeah but it, it shows you how the science has changed what we do in clinics and how that impacts on sp- on individual patients yeah you know? Um, and now this is kind of the opposite of that question <laughs> but is there anything that I suppose frustrates you even I mean just even about the academic process or grant writing or <laughs> you hit the nail on the head <laughs> <laughs> yeah grant writing is is uh, very frustrating uh, it has become more frustrating because mm-hmm. it goes and you know and actually I was listening to one of your perform, earlier podcasts with Marina Lynch and you asked her that question and she said admin 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 <laughs> so yeah admin drives me mad yeah uh, because it's just become so repetitive uh, form filling you know the forms have got bigger and longer and you almost think there's people in there just who are literally devoted to actually creating new forms <laughs> every year they m- produce more forms and more forms and more forms and boxes that you have to fill in with the same information again and again and again yeah. anyway so that's really frustrating the other thing frustrating I think is that you know, research can be a slow process, Yeah. you know, and sometimes it can be tough. I mean, I remember when I started, I was in a lab. I had a whole floor of a lab to myself. I was the only person in there. And, I, you know, I was I was basically left to my own devices. And so and I started growing these endothelial cells. And boy, was that frustrating. <laughs> Six months, nothing happened. And uh, well, very little happened. All right. You know, every day I'd go in and some, I'd see some cells and I said, that's great. And then it passes them and they die. <laughs> so and then I went went and I'd, I'd sort of seek out some help from somebody upstairs who might have been doing similar sort of things so yeah that doesn't happen quite so much now but yeah, uh, yeah it can be tough and can be very frustrating but you know that in itself can be a learning curve and you can you know uh, it, it makes you determined and I think uh, one thing I'd say is I'm determined <laughs> definitely never give up <laughs> yeah, never give up 
Um, well, Doug, my last question, which I ask every guest now is, I don't know if you're expecting this one, but if you weren't a scientist or if you weren't a clinician, I should say, sorry, yeah. um, and are a researcher, where do you think your life would have ended up or what alternate career do you think you may have had? Yeah, I, you know, I, because I, I decided when I was 10 I want to be a doctor. <laughs> I don't think I ever thought about anything else. But um, I, I did, when I was in college and, uh, you know, sort of in, in the hospitals, I, I did love sort of amateur acting. And I, okay. I do think if I was going to do anything else, I would have been an actor. And I probably would have been a bad actor. But I, I, I do think, you know, I do like performing that's why I like talking on yeah, the stage yeah. and, I, and I, you know, I like talking in meetings and so, you know, and I do, I love interacting with people and getting a reaction from people. So, yeah, so I, I think I probably would have been an actor, maybe a scientist, you never know. Oh, you could have been uh, now in Hollywood. You could have <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late. <laughs> never too late, exactly. The, your, your patients will never see you again now, you'll be gone. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, Doug, it's been so lovely to chat to you. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today. Uh, pleasure, thank Thanks, mate. Thanks. That's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 